listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. Greetings again, friends, and welcome back, not only to another episode of Resurrection Life, uh, but also to our consideration of the question of what is a kingdom-conscious life? Uh, We've been taking up several parts of that question. Today we come to the question particularly of how the uh, advancing of Christ's kingdom as a primary aim of all that we do should inform our lives together in the church. Uh, the local church. We're all together in agreement, I think, uh, that the church is to be devoted to worshiping God, the church is to be devoted to uh, nurturing or edifying the saints, and the church is to be involved in sharing the gospel uh, with those who are unsaved in the world. Uh, Widespread agreement on that threefold calling of the church, but I want in today's podcast to explore what it looks like to pursue each of those things with a decidedly kingdom awareness, uh, a kingdom ambition. Uh, I submit to my listeners that there are ways to pursue those things without that, without a kingdom consciousness. Uh, It is quite possible for the church to become an ingrown and somewhat self-absorbed community, Uh, just trying to survive in a difficult world. Uh, But God calls his people, especially as they gather together uh, in local expressions of the Church of Jesus Christ, to be seeking first the kingdom. Uh, As I tease out some of the implications of this, um, I'm mindful that uh, when I first said it, and even now as I've gone back to review it, I have a few things to assert that are Uh, at least potentially controversial. Uh, There are ways in which uh, doing our job as a local church uh, in advancing the kingdom will make our lives messier as a local church. Uh, There are ways in which we can uh, acknowledge that as we seek to advance the kingdom as a local church, numbers uh, become important to us, results become important to us, contrary uh, to what some Uh, have supposed even our worship uh, as local churches uh, is not only an end in itself. That may be um, somewhat controversial in itself, but I'm going to be trying to make the case that worship also serves, at least our worship here and now, it also serves as a means to advancing the kingdom. Uh, There's a lot that I am Uh, putting forward in this uh, sermon that I'm sharing again, um, particularly with regard to that last point, the role of worship uh, in advancing the kingdom. I'm going to put in the show notes for this podcast a link uh, to yet another sermon, just for those who may want more understanding of what I'm trying to say when I talk about worship as a means of advancing the kingdom. The sermon is titled, Worship Heard by the World. And that's extra credit, uh, if you will. I trust this will be, again, uh, helpful, a blessing to you who listen, uh, taken from the files uh, of a sermon preached in yesteryear here at Resurrection. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew this morning, in the 16th chapter. We are in the third of a four-part series 
here at the outset of the year, seeking to explore in some summary way the practical implications of this theme that unites the scripture of the kingdom. This morning, we consider together the kingdom and your church. I'll read this among many passages this morning, Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Amen. And Jesus of Nazareth came announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and calling himself the Messiah, the anointed one, which is to say the son of David, the king, Many expected him to establish a kingdom by the shedding of blood and the raising of an army. Of course, he did do that, but not in the way that was expected. He shed blood. As we just sang, he shed his own blood in the greatest, most heroic battle any king has undergone. And to the point of this morning, he did raise an army. He founded what he called his ecclesia, his church. And you just sang of that church as the army of the Lord and you as being a willing member of that army. We are, as the church of Jesus Christ, the army of the Lord. I hope you can see how closely then the church relates to the coming of the kingdom. That's clear in the text that I just read, that the church bears a critical role in the advancing of the kingdom. Peter has just responded to Jesus. You are the Christ. Remember, that word means the anointed one. You anoint kings. You're the king. You're the promised king, the promised Messiah, the son of God. Remember, that expression very much had in mind the royal son. You are the king, Peter has said. And Jesus declares that on that basis, Peter as an apostle representing all the apostles, confessing that truth, Jesus on that foundation is going to build his church. And that church is going to be engaged in this great battle against the very forces of hell. And it will be victorious, he says. He declares that the church will have the very keys of the kingdom. Of heaven. Now, there is a great deal you are aware in that text, and we will save 
almost all of it for when we come in our studies in Matthew to that portion. For the moment, I'm simply launching this morning from this text on the basis of what is clearest there, and that is that the church is an institution of God's appointing that is vital to the coming of the kingdom. I would take more time to establish that if it was less obvious or more debatable. But instead, what I want to do this morning is to make much of what that practically means for the church. That is to say, for you and me as a church, to devote ourselves to advancing the kingdom of Christ. We want to consider together, what do we do as a church? What are we supposed to do as a church? And how does all that that we do rightly advance the kingdom? Now, it's very conventional wisdom. It's the all but universal consensus of students of the scripture that there are three primary tasks of the church. There are three functions of the church of Jesus Christ. The worship of God, the nurture of the saints, and the outreach to those who are lost. And in the past, I have been unable to resist putting that in the form of three E's. And I'm sure I got that from someone. I can't remember where I got it along the way. Exaltation, edification, and evangelism. Now, those are the three functions of the church, and the church understands that very well. But we would be remiss to think that those three functions of the church are three ends in and of themselves. That in doing those things, we're doing something that is in itself our reason for existence. No, no. The church has one reason for existence. The reason the church exists is to advance the kingdom. And each of those three things that is very clear from the scripture the church is to do are to be done with that aim. We are to worship, we are to nurture, and we are to reach the lost, all for the purpose of advancing the kingdom of Christ. This morning, I want to look at some very broad principles of what this means for us as a church. And let me say that especially this morning, I'll simply be putting out before you some broad principles that I trust you and I will be able to open up and continue to apply for years to come together. We're going to look at those three E's, but in reverse order. Let's take first evangelism. I trust that that is the closest one to being intuited to you as a means of advancing the kingdom. That's most obviously related in our minds. That's Christ's great commission, as we've called it, to make disciples of all the nations. And as soon as he says all the nations, you already can hear in his voice the kingdom language. Making disciples of all the nations involves spreading the rule and reign of Christ in the earth as the rightful king. But brothers and sisters... It's very possible to engage in the work of evangelism with something far less than a kingdom consciousness. You and I can do that merely out of a sense of duty. 
Out of a sense that that's something that Christians are supposed to do. You learn that way back when you first went through your first discipleship class, perhaps with another Christian, and you realize they're to go to church, they're to read the Bible and pray, and they're to evangelize. And that's something Christians do, and you know that Scripture speaks of it frequently, and so you might speak the gospel to someone else merely out of a sense of personal duty. It's what Christians are supposed to do. You might also speak the gospel to someone out of compassionate concern for them, out of love for them. We are often motivated that way, aren't we? It's especially true when we know the person we're speaking to and when we have come to have a burden for their life apart from Christ. And so oftentimes it's purely an expression of love. Nothing much bigger than that, but just concern for them. And these are both proper motives in evangelism. But there's a higher one in the scripture. And it is ultimately to be the engine of evangelism by the part of a church. It's not love for men. It's love for God. It's our first love that's to be the engine of evangelism and specifically love that expresses itself in the desire for the rule of Christ to be acknowledged by all that we meet. That's the engine of evangelism. In the scriptures, I want you to see that in the Apostle Paul. If you turn over with me to Romans chapter one, and I'll just remind you of something we saw earlier last year as Paul sums up as one of the greatest of all evangelists in the history of the church, his reason for going and speaking the gospel. In verse five of chapter one, he says, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. For the sake of his name among all the nations. Why is the apostle devoting his life to the spread of the gospel? He's doing it for the sake of his name among all the nations. He wants his efforts at evangelism to be the means of Christ's lordship being acknowledged. He wants to hear people say, Jesus is Lord because it's his name that is motivating the apostle. It's the fame of his name. That drives this man. Now, the apostle had great love for men as well. He had a great love for the lost, we might say. But apparently, that was not his primary motive. I suggest that to you from what he says over in chapter 9. Romans 9, where we'll be coming back to in just a few weeks, picking up again in our series in Romans. Listen to what he says at the outset of that chapter about those he Loves his fellow Jews. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm not yet sure what I'm going to say about that expression of the apostle. When we come to that, I could wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ. I'm not yet sure what I'm going to say about that, but I can say to you right now, that is expressing the heart of the apostle of love for his fellow Jews. That much is very clear. If Paul was motivated to preach the gospel primarily out of love for men, he would have devoted his life to Jewish evangelism, I dare say. But he didn't. He took the gospel to the nations. He became the apostle to the Gentiles. 
And he went nation by nation. Why? Because his great zeal, even at the cost of turning his back on those he loved the most, was to spread the fame of the name of Christ as king in the earth. Now, that's a bigger view of evangelism, brothers and sisters, than we often have. And it is a, a factor to be speaking understatedly that explains often our failures in this way. A sense of duty will only get you so far. Even love for others will only get you so far in motivating you to speak the gospel. Have you ever noticed that it's hard to love someone you don't know? Actually, strictly speaking, it's impossible for you to love someone you don't know exists. And your love for them goes out to them in proportion to you actually knowing them. What would motivate a Christian, an ordinary Christian like you and me, to speak the gospel to people you don't even know? It wouldn't be chiefly love for them. It would be love for one you do know. And love for the one that you love chiefly, the King. And that, brothers and sisters, is to be our great motive in evangelism. It's the zeal for the coming of the kingdom of Christ so that he is glorified by more and more sinners on the earth. That is to motivate us. Now, that's a kingdom perspective on evangelism. That's going at this first function of the church that we're speaking of together of evangelism with a kingdom consciousness and as we think on this, perhaps I've not said anything here thus far that's particularly hard to understand or accept, but let's work out a couple of the implications of that. If it's true that evangelism is primarily a means by which we advance the kingdom of Christ, that's its number one objective, its reason for our duty, then we've got to get over a couple of hang-ups as a church. First of all, if evangelism is about advancing the kingdom, we need to recognize, and I say it provocatively, that numbers are everything. Numbers are everything. You look at evangelism in the context of the advancing of a kingdom on earth, and you will not have any sense that numbers don't matter. That the numerical growth of the church here in the world and in our city is irrelevant by the standards of the kingdom, more is better. It's been so from the beginning when God lays the foundation of his kingdom and he tells Adam to multiply and fill the earth. He's saying, I don't want simply to have a, a nice little nuclear family here that's representing the image of God in the earth. I want the whole earth full of the image of God in men. I want there to be lots of you, so get busy. He says to Abraham, in his redemptive promise, you count the stars, can you? That's how many descendants you're going to have. I'm into the numbers here as I build my kingdom. My kingdom will be impressive by its sheer size. And that's what we see unfolding in the book of Acts, where Luke tells us again and again the church multiplied greatly. Brothers and sisters, I'm emphasizing this in contrast to what can be our reaction in our own circles as we exist as a church in the shadow of this 20th century phenomenon, particularly in America, of the mega church. We 
are those who are not uncritical of that phenomenon. Rightly so. The men on Saturday mornings have just been looking at the rise of that phenomenon in the 20th century and been struck by how the author of our church history text links uh, evangelical Christianity America in its privatizing of faith, not having any concern for the Christian life being outwardly expressed. He links that privatization of Christianity with the mega church because you can all be anonymous in a mega church. Brothers and sisters, we have very well thought out concerns about that phenomenon. But here's where we are in danger. We can come to think in our critique of that phenomenon that the thing that really matters, the thing that really matters is quality, not quantity. We often see those things as mutually exclusive, right? What really matters is quality. That's what we're after as a church. We don't care about numbers. Numbers are not important. And brothers and sisters, from a kingdom perspective, that is absurd. It's absurd to think of either of those things as as being dispensable when there's a kingdom to be advanced. In this illustration, I am venturing into an area where I obviously do not have expertise. But it does seem beyond dispute by now that the troop surge in Iraq has had its effect on reducing casualties, both Iraqi and American. That seems to be, even by those most critical of the war effort, acknowledged by now. And it would appear that in light of that, Rumsfeld was wrong. Remember that debate? Rumsfeld says we just need light, well-trained uh, quick and mobile units and the old stodgy generals going by old military doctrine said, no, 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 there's no substitute for strength of numbers on the ground. We seem to be seeing something of that as we watch what's happening in Iraq. When someone says numbers aren't everything, you know, ask them numbers of what? If you're just talking about numbers of warm bodies, unregenerate warm bodies, well, of course, of course. If you're talking about numbers of genuine spirit indwelt, earnest citizens and soldiers of Christ's kingdom, you're crazy. That's exactly what the kingdom is about. It's about gaining a vast multitude in the service of the king so vast that they will fill the earth. You tell our brothers and sisters in Europe, for example, our faithful, Bible-believing, worshipping brethren in Europe, in Great Britain, to take an example, that numbers aren't everything. You know that there are preachers in England and Scotland that have, the, that have ten times the gifts of your pastor and they're preaching to paltry little 50, 60 people. And that's a standard thing. There are churches that are immense and beautiful and the congregations are shriveled up and tiny. The church, numerically, is waned dramatically, as you well know. Those saints, the faithful there, would rightly pray with aching desire, as we do in our hymn, we long to see our churches full. Brothers and sisters, if evangelism is a means to advancing the kingdom... But you and I as a church 
are to have a healthy desire to grow. To grow, yes, numerically, because in kingdom terms, numbers are everything. And secondly, in kingdom terms, I continue to be provocative, perhaps. Results are everything. Numbers and results. I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, now wait a minute. I've heard that before. That's the gospel of corporate America. Numbers and results, that's the bottom line. And that's what our church is so fed into in evangelicalism today. We are right to eschew that. But here's a balancing observation for those of us who recognize the danger of corporate America's gospel. From the kingdom's perspective, we are all about results. Ultimately, the result of men yielding themselves to the gospel and to the king of the gospel. If you look with me at a familiar passage again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is speaking with this kind of all about results framework. Verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 9, he says, For though I am a free man, pardon me, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, being not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Chameleon Paul. Listen to me how he continues. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul, apparently, if he were asked about certain ways that he did evangelism, certain ways that he sought to reach the lost, if he were asked about certain aspects of his ministry, why you do that, Paul? Apparently, he would have said, because it's working. The word for that is pragmatism. He says, I'm this way here and I'm that way there. I look a lot like a Gentile here, but I look a lot like a Jew here. Why? Because I'm trying to save people and it's working. And of course, I've been in Presbyterianism for a long time and I know how nervous that makes us feel. Pragmatic? Pragmatic? I've never heard... In a presbytery meeting, someone say, brothers, my defense for this is simply that it's working. We know better than to do that. The apostle had a form of pragmatism as he pursued ministry of evangelism. He was not an unprincipled pragmatist. You know better than that. You know the man. I'm a Jew here. I'm a Gentile here. But whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. If it's necessary to become a Jew in order for the gospel to be received, if someone, for example, in my company is told he must be circumcised in order to go to heaven, I say, not on your life. He's a principled pragmatist. And yet he recognizes that this whole thing about the kingdom is about securing certain Results. That's inherent to the campaign 
of a king. Imagine in a war a general receiving word from one of those reporting to him, General, we've lost two divisions. The other three are in retreat and have been decimated. Imagine a general saying, Son, don't worry about that. We're just here to uphold certain principles. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. A general's on the field in order to secure the field. And this is to work its way through our view of evangelism. A kingdom conscious church asks herself this question on a recurring basis. What are we doing that isn't working? What could we do that would work better in securing men's allegiance to Christ? And nothing that we do will we permit to compromise the very gospel we're speaking of. Not only because we have certain principles, but because that would compromise the very result we're seeking. We're seeking the gospel to have success. Nothing will compromise the gospel among men. But we're, re- we're ready to be chameleon-like in order to secure the salvation, the allegiance, the loyalty of men to Christ. We need to open up these things further, but I move on this morning to the second function of the church. And I'm going in reverse order, and we take up the subject, the second e, edification or the nurture of the saints. This is universally acknowledged to be the function of the church. It's always been so. We speak in our congregation of the means of grace as those things which God has given to us to nourish us in Christ. We find them in their highest forms right here so that if it snows and we can't get here, we get hungry and go into a new week hungry as the saints of God. We recognize these things, but you probably anticipate the concern the balancing observation I want to raise here. And that is that our pursuit of the means of grace and mutual edification is not to be an end in itself. It is also a means to the advancing of the kingdom. You understand that the key word in the Bible for this purpose of edification is the word equipping. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians Chapter 4. The Apostle here is speaking of the whole purpose of pastors and teachers. And he says in chapter 4, verse 11, He, that's Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, that's saying something different than simply to say to nourish them in their relationship with Christ. That would not be wrong. But he goes to the ultimate end of all this work that is being done by your elders among you to nourish you. It's for a specific end. It's to equip you for the work of ministry. That's what we're doing when we gather here, whether you think of it or not. We're seeking to minister to each other. And to be ministered to by the pastor and elders, we're seeking those things in order that we might become ministers. In order that we can go from this place as those who are serving the king. 
That's why, for example, in the preaching of the word, you can liken this to what is done to equip men on the battlefield. There are certain parts of the scriptures that are very practical in their instruction, and they're like the instruction given the soldier about keeping his feet clean and his gun dry. Those are the things that we do and understand, we receive in the place of the means of grace in order to be equipped as soldiers. The other parts of the scripture that help us to know our enemy and to know our king and to know how to be those who engage the enemy on behalf of the king. The other parts of the scripture that we desperately need simply to have a big vision because soldiers lose their morale if they have no sense of how the battle is going. That, whether you thought of it or not, is part of why you gather here on Sundays. And that's why you minister to one another. You need not turn, but Hebrews 10 is a familiar passage that encourages us to gather and encourages us in order to, to do what? In order to stir one another up to love and good works. The writer of Hebrews says, don't, don't forsake gathering together. And he doesn't say, if you do, you'll be more easily prone to depression. If you do, you'll be lonely. He doesn't say, if you do, you'll just miss out on the fun because it's, it's fun to be together with the people of God. He says, you'll be unfruitful. Christians, if you don't gather around the means of grace. So, perhaps thus far, I'm not saying something too unprecedented in your thinking. But let's look at a couple of the practical implications of it. If edification is about advancing the kingdom, brothers and sisters, then we will not allow it among us as a church to become an exercise in self-absorption. There's a danger to that. I say with gladness from personal experience as a pastor, there are some Christians, many Christians I've known with positively voracious appetites for spiritual sustenance. They love good sermons. Two weeks isn't enough. So they find others and they listen to them. They read constantly good books. They're ahead of me in knowing what's come most recently off the Christian publishers list. They can't get enough Bible teaching. They're in Bible studies and conferences and even in our city seminary courses. And they certainly wouldn't miss a single church function. But brothers and sisters, it is possible to have such an appetite and to feast on the means of grace with an astonishing disregard for those who have none of it around us. This is the kind of Christian that I've described that has made his own spiritual growth an end in of itself. And it's not that. All that food is intended to make him fit for service, not just fat. A fit soldier in the army of God, which is the church. We are not as immune to our culture's therapy orientation as we like to think, are we? We can come to worship solely out of the concern to have our felt needs met, to be encouraged, to be uplifted. And so it's startling to us to think of being in worship and actually being challenged by something that we must go do in service to the King. We look at gathering with brothers and sisters as a way that our loneliness will be offset and our needs will be met. We very much 
can think that way and are startled to find that they're expecting us to minister to them. Even the Sabbath. How do you do the Sabbath? Those of you who understand it and, and are seeking to observe it. Do you view the Sabbath as, as an escape from the world? As the, the day in which we can just shut out of our minds the world that's around us? Or is the Sabbath the day that we come to seek to be equipped to minister to the world? Is that whole day a day of training for us to engage in the world? May I make this observation that perhaps is especially relevant to well-taught, spiritually mature Presbyterians. Most of us don't need so much to learn more. We need to put into practice what we already know. I include myself in that. And our voracious appetite to gain more and more cannot become a means simply of making our spiritual well-being an end of itself. We don't need more spiritual calories necessarily. We need to burn the ones we've got doing what they were intended to be. And another practical implication of the place of edification in the advancing the kingdom is this. Edification or outreach, pardon me, ed- nurture and outreach. These first two that I've spoken of are not as mutually exclusive as we might sometimes be tempted to think. Think with me about that for a moment. You know, that's the fact that some churches are very effective in evangelism, but their spiritual maturity is lacking. You can see it a mile away. Other churches promote spiritual growth and maturity, but they're weak in evangelism. It can be very tempting to think that these are inversely related in the life of churches. I want you to do a thought experiment with me for a moment. If the Lord were pleased to bless this church with an unprecedented number of new Christians, I point out to you that would lead to a couple of results. It would, by definition, make for a larger church, and it would also make for a less spiritually mature church because there would be all these new Christians. There would be lots of them, and in the thought experiment, they'd be new A larger congregation could threaten some of the spiritually rich patterns of fellowship and shepherding that we enjoy here. And a less spiritually mature congregation could necessitate a little more milk in the diet and a little bit less meat. And some of us who enjoy, I put myself in this category, intimate dining on gourmet food could be tempted to think, oh, this evangelism is costing us in terms of edification. We'd be tempted to think that if we thought that edification was an end in of itself. That's my point. It's not. Our gathering around the means of grace is not just a buffet. Our gathering around the means of grace is a means of equipping us to meet the needs of those very new Christians that I just spoke of in my thought experiment. It would be a great irony, wouldn't it? If in the name of preserving spiritual blessings in our midst, we refuse to share them proverb that comes to my mind as I think of these things is this one. Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of an ox. I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that the church, 
that achieves some perfection of mutual ministry and intimacy and enjoyment of the means of grace is probably not accomplishing much for the kingdom. Because kingdom effectiveness through a church makes for a lot more messy situation. There's a lot more on the floor, if you will. Those are some of the implications perhaps we should continue to consider together as a church. But I move on to the third function of a church, and that is worship. Or, if you will, 30 exaltation. Perhaps you are inclined to think, well, wait a minute. You're saying all these things are means to an end, but that's the one that will get you, Pastor. Worship. Worship has got to be considered an end in of itself. There's no higher purpose. It is our highest purpose. But yes, brothers and sisters, I'm going to tell you this morning, it too, our worship here, is a means to a higher end. It's a means to the coming of the kingdom. Now, here's why we would think that worship, what we're engaged in just now, is, is an end in of itself. We have been taught, rightly so, that our chief end as men is to glorify God and enjoy Him. And we're in this, we have the sense that what we do here is the most direct form of glorifying and enjoying God. And there is much truth to that, but here's what we're missing. Glorifying God involves much more than worship. In worship, we gather to learn about God's glory and to declare God's glory. And those things are in themselves glorifying to Him, but that's not enough to glorify God in the earth. That is obviously not enough. Or when God put Adam in the garden, He would have said, Adam, here, sing this and don't stop. Or when we got to heaven, we'd actually do what some of our children think heaven's going to be, which is sitting in a pew for all of eternity, just worshiping. You understand, that's not the garden and that's not the new heavens and new earth. God's glory requires something so much bigger than what we're doing right here. And what we're doing right here is a means to getting that much bigger end of God being glorified through all the earth in all the days of our lives. We have seen, brothers and sisters, one way already, how worship is a means of equipping us service. That's a means to an end. That's the way that God's worship, the very exalting of his name, is actually a very practical effect of enabling us to advance the kingdom. I want to address another way in which our worship is but a means to an end. It is the means by which we enlist others in the God-glorifying work of advancing his kingdom. I trust I don't need to persuade you of this. By our worship, we want others to be transformed into people who worship and serve the king with us. In worship, men and women are converted to loyalty to the king. Do you know where you see that closest connection between worship and advancing the kingdom? You know where you find it, in my judgment, the closest in the Scripture? It's in our worship book. It's in the Psalms. The manual for worship. The psalmist, as he speaks of worship and affords us words for worship, he sees that as a means by which people and nations will actually become worshipers. 
I'm just going to read you some lines from about a half a dozen psalms, and you'll know how representative these are because you know the psalms. What's the recurring phrase here? Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. And I will sing praises to you among the nations. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. What's the expression that's recurring? The peoples. The peoples. Or sometimes the nations. I want you to get this picture. The psalmist in his exercise of worship and is leading us. It's as if he has one eye on the king and the other eye on all the peoples who should be worshiping the king, but aren't. That's the way he is in worship. He's not just all about Jesus. He's not just got in some way sealing off everything else in some rapture. Oh, we have rapturous moments in the Psalms, but recurring concern by the psalmist. There need to be more people here. There need to be people experiencing with me what I'm experiencing God's presence because He's a great God. His great deeds should be known by all the peoples. The psalmist is engaging in worship with one eye on God and another on those who ought to be with Him in worship. We have a high regard for this principle in our tradition when we assert that the preaching of the Word is the primary means by which sinners are converted. Brothers and sisters, it's one thing to acknowledge that sinners could be saved as a kind of byproduct of worship. It's another thing to view our worship as a means to that end. We recognize that worship is to be a means of advancing the kingdom in this way. Here's a couple of implications of it that perhaps we'll need to sort out in the coming years. First, we will be keenly and constantly aware that our neighbor needs to be here as much as we do. Just to get this straight in your mind, the worship of the one true God is not just for Christians. It's for creatures all creatures, great and small. They will come under His judgment if they are not here. The worship of God by the Creator King is for all creatures. Of course, they can't do it unless they become Christians. But you will see them as becoming that as they worship You think of the call to worship that frequently, as we reminded this morning, comes from the Psalms as something that's said by God to his people. And it's true. And we use it that way on Sunday morning. God calling his people to worship. But as often in the Psalms, those calls to worship are actually the psalmist calling other people to worship. That is to say, it's what you do when you, as the consummate opportunist, Say to your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, 
Uh, we're starting a new series on the first book of the New Testament. Why don't you come with me? I know I've asked you before, but why don't you come this time? Or as the turn of the year takes place and you think people are beginning to have New Year's resolutions, and you say, why don't you make that one of your resolutions and just try the church where I worship? Where you recognize that your unbelieving friend is going through something that has softened up a lot of those resistance measures that he's built in. And you say, I'd like to bring up church again. You need to be worship, worshiping God. You call your unbelieving brothers, pardon me, you call your unbelieving neighbor to worship. Not just because you're a good friend. Because you're like the psalmist. You're into recruiting for the army of God. That's what you're doing. You're a recruitment officer. It means that we will be constantly keenly aware our neighbor needs to be here as much as we do. And it means, secondly, that we will recognize that what we do here must be done with an eye to the unbeliever among us. I'm using the same language that I used just a moment ago to speak of the psalmist as he writes the psalms. If our worship were an end of itself, we could have our eyes only on Jesus. But our worship is a means by which Jesus extends his kingdom. And if that's true, we ought to have an eye on those who are not yet loyal to him. What does that mean practically? Oh, oh, this, this is a matter of intense debate. Some of you will know. A matter of intense debate. And it's a debate worth having. It does not mean, let me say, that we collapse our worship into an evangelistic service. So that the whole focus of our gatherings is on the, the unbeliever that ceases to be worshipped. Worship is not worship unless it is an activity directed to God, who is the recipient of our worship. Brothers and sisters, it does mean that not only do we try to get the unsaved in our midst, but we endeavor to make what we're doing in worship as intelligible to him as possible. Understandable. So that he actually can understand what we're doing. I didn't say make what we're doing familiar to him or comfortable to him or even attractive to him. The worship of God will be unfamiliar to those who don't know God. The worship of God will be an uncomfortable experience who approach God in all of his holiness. And it may be an intensely unattractive thing. He may never come back because we were worshiping not meeting his needs first and foremost. But I did say our worship should be intelligible as much as possible to the unbeliever. Why? Because that's one of the purposes of worship is to make a worshiper of him. We're calling all men to worship the king, all glorious above. And so we set ourselves to overcoming unnecessary barriers to our being at least understood. Can I turn you to one other passage? It's in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's the passage there the Apostle lays out as clearly as he possibly could this principle. It's a universal principle taken from his giving counsel to the church as they practice the gift of tongues and prophecy. 
we believe that while those gifts have ceased, there are principles for worship embedded here that are universal. Listen to what he says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Some of us might have been tempted to say, it doesn't matter what they say. It's not about them. They're invited, but there's absolutely no concern on our part to allay their concerns that we might actually be off our rockers. Paul says, that's a big concern to me. Why would that be a big concern to Paul? Well, because he expects the stranger, the unbeliever, to come. And he, as the passage goes on, he wants that person to understand what's being said so that he can be convicted of sin, called to account before God, and as he puts it, fall on his face. And he won't do that if he can't understand what you're saying. Because if we do not remember this principle, our worship as Presbyterians can become more and more retreatist when worship from the kingdom perspective is not retreat, it's advance. It's where we call men to surrender to the king and swear allegiance to him. That lies at the very heart of its purpose. And I recognize the second principle that I've just articulated is one that applies more to those who lead in worship than it does to you. Making intelligible what we do here. But I simply put them both before you because notice how related they are. It's a lot more motivating to those who lead in worship to make what we're doing here intelligible to those who are unbelievers and strangers if you're bringing them in. But it's a lot more motivating to you to invite that stranger and unbeliever. If you know when he gets here, he'll understand what's being said. See how they're so closely related? They're reciprocal. And we need to weigh these two things together as a church. I've spoken in a summary way principles that no doubt we would profitably dwell on for a long time to come. I'm seeking this morning to turn your thoughts, if they are here, of the church as some kind of bunker or bomb shelter in the kingdom of God to viewing it as the bomber, the destroyer, the heavy artillery. That's what you are as a church. That's what you're doing when you evangelize. That's what you're being equipped to do when you're edified by the church. And yes, brothers and sisters, that's what you see happening in your very midst when we gather to worship the one true God. All three of those functions are not ends in themselves. They're means to this end that Christ to establish this army he calls the ecclesia will be enthroned in the praises of men all across the world because that's what we are seeking as a church. Amen. Let's pray together.
You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.